As you're taking your Bibles and turning to the book of Ezekiel, we'll be in mostly chapters 4 and 5 today. And I want you to try to imagine how bizarre it would be to, uh, if you worked for a, you know, a massive Fortune 500 company like IBM or Apple or Toyota or Exxon, whatever, and, and you were in a, an executive meeting and all the, all the top um, execs were there. And as the meeting started, the CEO of the company got out of his chair, went over to the corner, got a box and came and poured it out in the middle of the room and he sat on the floor and started playing with matchbox cars and going vroom, vroom, vroom. and he had little green army men that he was sitting around and uh, he had some Lincoln logs, he started building a fort. Uh, needless to say, that would be a rather bizarre and memorable executive meeting. We expect a little boy to act that way, but we certainly wouldn't expect the CEO of a company to do that. As we come to Ezekiel 4 and 5 today, we're going to see how God called Ezekiel to some of the most embarrassing, humiliating things that anyone could ever be called to do in public. Uh, Isaiah is a close second, I think. He had a, an opportunity to uh, serve the Lord in a way that most people would never want to. I'll let you look that one up on your own. But um, we saw last week God called and sent Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3 to take a message of warning to his wayward people who had been taken captive from down in Judah, where Jerusalem was, taken up to Babylon to live in exile there. In fact, I want to show you very quickly these maps once again, just to help cement them in our minds. The first map, 722 BC, Assyria came down and attacked Israel, the northern part in the purple there. And then you go to the second map, we see that Assyria basically took the Israelites and scattered them into nations all over the place to um, basically break them up so that they would never again be able to form an alliance and retaliate against Assyria. So Israel now has been sort of scattered to the winds. Now, the third map, this is what we've been talking about quite a bit in 605, and then again in 597, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came down and they attacked the southern part of Judah, the green there. And the next map will show you they took them back to Babylon. <clears throat> Daniel was in that first captivity, Ezekiel was in the second, and the blue arrow there shows where we are now in our text today. We have not yet come to the, to the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 587, 586, but we are right there in between. And I hope that'll just help once again um, affirm the timeline in our minds of where we are and what's going on. So now Ezekiel has been taken in that second mission. He's now up in Babylon as one of the exiles. God has called him to now go and minister to those exiles who are up there. Um, Jeremiah, as we saw, has been left down in Judah. He's trying to minister to the little ragged bunch of people who have been left down there. Now, as we come to chapter 4 today, Ezekiel now begins his ministry as a prophet of God. And we get a rather uncomfortable glimpse into just what a costly, painful, and humbling ministry he was called to. The best way I know to do this 
is simply to read all of chapter 4, and then we'll pick up some in chapter 5 in a moment. I, again, I know it's a lot of text. I think it's healthy for us to discipline ourselves in today's um, soundbite world, um, to extend our mind and our brains uh, a little bit further than normal and take this in. So let's, uh, let's take a few minutes together and read Ezekiel chapter 4, and we'll set the stage for this. Verse 1. God speaking, now, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, take a clay tablet, or it also can be translated brick or a tile, and lay it before you and portray or sketch the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams around it. Then take an iron plate or an iron pan And set it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It shall be besieged, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Verse 4, then lie on your left side, and lay the iniquity of the people of Israel upon it, or upon yourself. You shall bear their iniquity for the number of the days that you lie on your side. For I have laid on you the same number of days as the years of their iniquity. So for 390 days you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Verse 6. And when you have completed this, lie down again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the people or the house of Judah. I have laid on you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. I will restrain you, or the picture is to tie you in ropes, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have ended the days of your siege. Verse 9, also, take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight. In other words, it's going to be rationed. You shall also drink water by measure or by ration. Two-thirds of a quart, I've, I've adjusted this uh, into modern measurements so that we can understand it. So eight ounces a day of food, and then translates into two-thirds of a quart of water. Uh, per day. From time to time you shall drink it. That's also translated at set times. Verse 12, and you shall eat it like barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human dung in their sight. Then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So said I, O Lord, Lord God, I have never defied myself from my youth till now. I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has unclean meat ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, see, or I'm relenting. I am giving you cow dung instead of human dung, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Verse 16, moreover, he said to me, son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem They shall eat bread by weight, or again by ration amounts, and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure, and with dread. 
that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. Well, happy Sunday morning, everyone. Anybody want to come up and teach this instead of me? No volunteers? Ezekiel is called now to these wayward, rebellious people of God to go out into public and begin acting out in front of the people these things God has told him to do in order to try to help them see the consequences that their sin was going to bring about. Um, It's a picture of God saying, look, for hundreds of years, I've sent prophets to you again and again and again to come and speak my words to you. And you haven't listened to what they've said, so now maybe in a last-ditch effort, maybe you'll pay attention if you can see my coming judgment acted out in front of you. This was not an uncommon thing for this day. Uh, prophets sometimes did this. We've, as I said, we, we saw Ezekiel have to act out uh, one thing when he was told to go naked in front of people. Uh, we saw Jeremiah have to do this when he had to smash some pottery and so on. But now this with Ezekiel is taken to extremes that we've never seen before. And God says in uh, one of these chapters here, he says, Um, In chapter 5, I'm doing something that I've never done before and will never do again. And so we see this is at a point in history where I said to you before, this is the lowest point in the Jewish history. And it's at a time when this this is the breaking point for God. He has been patient with these people, and now it's, it's like a parent having to go to the unthinkable extreme to save their wayward child. And the parent doesn't want to do it at all. So the first thing Ezekiel had to do was to take a a clay tablet or a a brick or a tile, it can be translated, and sketch out or engrave the the city, sort of the skyline of Jerusalem on that. Now, we may be thinking of a tile, a little thing like this, but some of these Babylonian bricks or blocks that they have unearthed, they've unearthed thousands of these things. Some of them are massive. Um, They're several feet in length and very thick and very heavy. In fact, here's a a photograph of just a few that they found where people have actually sketched drawings and so on to to try to illustrate um, what they were trying to convey. These are the early iPads here, basically what they are. And then God told Ezekiel to take this sketch of Jerusalem and pretend like it was under attack. You know, position Uh, an enemy all around it, build little camps all around the city, this model city of Jerusalem, and build dirt ramps up against the wall like like they would do in real life, and make little tiny battering rams, and get down and, you know, and pretend like you're going to knock the gate of the wall down. And I want you, day after day, I want you to come, and I want you to act this out in front of the people. But the interesting thing is, at the time... Ezekiel was told to act all this out. Jerusalem wasn't under siege yet. In fact, it would be several years before uh, the 586 timeline when Babylon would again come down and completely uh, um, uh, besiege um, Judah and Jerusalem, take them captive, destroy the city, and destroy the temple. That had not happened, and it was not even really uh, on the horizon yet. So... 
People listening to Ezekiel really at this point in history had no reason to believe anything he was saying. So here's this grown man in the town square or in some other public place building a little model of Jerusalem and acting like he's attacking it. And then God said, as if that wasn't bad enough, embarrassing enough, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days out in public, about 13 months. And as you're laying there, I want you to stare at this model of Jerusalem every day. And then I want you to take an iron plate, iron skillet or pan. Again, this would have been something rather large. Um, some of these were, would have been used in, in uh, offerings and so on. And so you take this iron plate, this iron pan, and you, you place it between your own face as you're lying there and this model of Jerusalem that you've built. And this was to show how the people's sin had completely separated them from God. It had cut them off. Iron was still fairly new at the time. It was a rather treasured um, commodity. And uh, so it was a novel thing. And for, for him to, to use this was quite a picture for these people. Like, you know, nothing can get through iron kind of thing. And it was a visual image of how these people had cut themselves off from God because of their sin and how they would be completely on their own when this siege came if they didn't repent and return to God. But it's just starting to get bad. Ezekiel is then told, and I'm just recapping this quickly because this isn't even the point of this message, but we have to get these details. He's then told, for the duration of these 390 days, he could only eat bread made from scraps of grains. This was not something they ever would have put together to make bread. I'm sure this sounded disgusting to him. And he had to cook it over human dung. Ezekiel's horrified when he hears this, as anybody would be. He says, Lord, I've I was studying to be a priest. I've never defiled myself. If I do this, I will defile myself. <clears throat> Why are you asking me to do this? And God relents as we see him do in scripture sometimes. And he says to Ezekiel, okay, I'll make a concession. You can use cow dung or animal dung to cook your bread over instead. I mean, okay, it's not a bad concession, I guess, but still, pretty rough um, commandment to carry out. And that wasn't the end of it. He was only allowed to eat eight ounces of this disgusting food a day. And he was only allowed to drink two-thirds of a quart of water per day for the entire duration of the 390 days. That, <clears throat> that would keep him alive. But in the extreme heat of that part of the world there, it would leave him weak and wasting away. Folks, the picture here, this was a starvation diet. It was just enough to keep him alive. And it was all to show that when Jerusalem came under siege, the city's food and water supply would be cut off, and these rebellious people would be forced to try and make bread from, from whatever scraps of grain they could find at the bottoms of the bins. And they would they would try to take all these scraps and, and, and make a decent meal. But the point would eventually come 
where, where some, many of these people would starve to death. And that's exactly what happened as you follow history out. Probably another coincidence. In fact, chapter 5 gives the grisly details that things would become so desperate that fathers would eat their sons and sons would eat their fathers. They would turn to cannibalism. Jeremiah lived through all of that down there. And he wrote about these horrors in his little book of Lamentations, which we'll be getting to as soon as we study the siege of Jerusalem coming up soon. Jeremiah lived through this. He witnessed all of this firsthand, and, and he wrote about this in Lamentations. A couple of examples, Lamentations 1, 11, All the people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. Chapter 4. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. You get the picture here. And God is getting Ezekiel to put on this performance art to act out, to try one more time to get the attention of these people who have turned their back on God and to say to them, look at what is happening to this man, my prophet, this man I love, this man I've called. He is wasting away to try and show you what's going to happen so that you don't have to go through this. I decided to let you guys explore chapters 6 and 7 on your own just for time's sake. I, I just can't um, fit all this stuff in every Sunday. But in chapter 5, God calls Ezekiel to do another bizarre thing. He calls him to take a sharp sword and cut off his beard and all of his hair. Now, I've never had a haircut with a sword, but I would imagine uh, you've got to have a pretty steady hand to, to do that well. And so he's told by God to take a sharp sword, to cut off his beard, to cut off his hair. And then he's told to take, to weigh it out, to take a third of his hair and burn it. Take another third of his hair and beat it into the ground with that sword. And then take the final third of his hair and scatter it to the wind. And that's how God is saying the people are going to be scattered and destroyed when this siege happens, unless they return to me. But why is hair? Because I think God wanted Ezekiel to cut something from his own body and destroy it. To show that that's what we're like to God. We're like his own body, a very part of him. And it's as though God wants his people to understand. You think it's fun disciplining you? It's not fun. It's like cutting off part of myself and destroying it. That's what it's like. And every parent in here knows the pain of that. Every parent. How many of us have shed tears after having to discipline one of our children? There's no joy in that. It's agony. It's agony to have to do that. 
because your children are part of you. And this is what God is saying. I take no joy in this. And I want you to understand that when I discipline you, it's like cutting off part of my my own body and destroying it. As Ezekiel lay there day after day for more than a year, trying to warn the people, watching his own body slowly waste away, suffering the laughter and the jeers of the crowds. I want you to get this. He was not only showing the consequences of their sin, he was also showing them what it was like to be God. What is God trying to get across to these stone-hearted people? It's not that he's going to punish them for 390 years. It's that they have punished him for 390 years. That's what he's saying. God had established their kingdom under King David and then King Solomon. He'd blessed them. He'd protected them. He'd provided for them. He had set them above all the nations on the earth because of his goodness. But Solomon went his own way, brought in pagan wives from other nations, and they all brought their pagan gods in. Hundreds of foreign gods came into Israel, and Solomon's heart was turned away from the one true God. And because of his sin, the kingdom was divided into that split we saw on the map, Israel and Judah. It was never meant to be that way. Every time you see that map, you remember Solomon's sin. His sin. And his son Rehoboam caused that split in the nation, and they never recovered from it. You think your choices today won't have consequences? And I want you to get this from the time of Solomon's sin to the time when Jerusalem was destroyed was 390 years. And throughout those 390 years, these people have been spitting in God's face. We've studied it for months and months and months now, like to ad nauseum, to the point of just, I can't take any more of these people's sin. Yeah. You know why I didn't skip any of that? Because that's exactly how God felt at this point. 390 years These people had done the opposite of what God asked them to do. They had used his name when it was convenient, and they had thrown it away when it wasn't. They were obstinate and arrogant and greedy. It was God who was sinned against for 390 years. He had suffered. He had been punished. He had been rejected and humiliated. And yet, day in and day out, what's the other thing we've seen for months and months and months now? Despite their rebellion, he had been kind. He had provided. He had waited for them. He had pleaded. He had offered. And he had performed miracles on their behalf. And they repaid him by worshiping other gods, by burning their own children in the fires of pagan altars, and by making peace treaties with wicked nations. And it's amazing. You look back at the days of Solomon. It took them no time at all to throw God out of the picture. You go all the way back to the thing we studied a couple years ago, Solomon building and dedicating that glorious temple of God, 
And the day that he dedicated it to God, we're told that God's presence came down into this temple. And what, a, what an absolutely mind-blowing picture this must have been for the people to stand there and to see and to feel and to hear the glory of God filling that place. And you'd think it would have taken one or two generations for the people to forget what they had just seen and drift away from God. But it didn't. When Solomon was still king, the nation turned their back on God, and they walked away. The people, the people who God called his bride, the people who God called his treasure, they abandoned him. It would be like a wife committing adultery on her wedding night. No honeymoon period. Just 390 years of betrayal. So tell me again, Mr. Bible critic, who's the one being unfair? Is God being unreasonable? Was 390 years of patience not enough? What would you recommend? Here's why people think God is unfair so often, even some Christians. Because they have a disproportionate view of how much they have suffered and how much God has suffered. We are so far off track in terms of the proportion, the the scale of our offenses toward God as individuals and as a human race relative to what we can blame him for, which is nothing. That we're convinced that God has been unfair with us. We've lost our minds. Ezekiel is now starting to understand what it was going to cost him to be God's representative. You see this throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God calls a man or a woman to follow them. And it's never this, you're the head and not the tail. Oh, God's going to bless you above everyone else. This is your year of jubilee. God's going to give you that new house on the hill. Maybe he will. But I want to tell you, the pattern you see in Scripture is God calls someone and then says, hey, Ananias, Go tell him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You're going to have to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. And it says the crowds disappeared over the hill. Ezekiel was starting to realize that he was going to be treated the way God had been treated for 390 years. I have a lot of respect for this man. He was beginning to feel how much pain he was going to suffer to play the part of God before the people. It's like God was saying, hey, Ezekiel, now that you're representing me to the people, let them know this is what it's like to be God. You get mocked and ridiculed. You get rejected by your own bride. And later on, Ezekiel, when your wife dies, 
You're not even going to be allowed to mourn for her because I want my people to see in you that this is what it's like to be God. This is what it's like to be the God who loves wayward people. God said, I'm going to tell a man to lay on his side for 390 days, wasting away on a starvation diet. You're going to see him turn to skin and bones. You're going to see his cheeks get hollow. You're probably going to see some of his teeth fall out. You're going to watch him almost die. I'm asking him to suffer on your behalf, just as I have suffered on your behalf, so that maybe you'll see it and you'll accept my grace and then you won't have to suffer this. God did all this to save the very people who had gutted him for 390 years. So tell me again, how is God unfair? I'm listening. What a gracious God we serve. He keeps calling and calling in order to spare you from the coming consequences of your sin. And the moment you turn to him, he will forgive you and begin to restore you. Oh, you may still have to endure his correction for your disobedience, but he wants to pour out his grace on you even in the correction. Look, if the truth be told about God, he's far too kind. He's far too patient. His, punishment, his punishments are not nearly severe enough in proportion to the heartache and humiliation that our sins have caused him. Think about. Think about the absurd lengths God has gone to to extend patience to this corrupt human race. Even now, in 2024, think of the magnitude of sin and violence and corruption that takes place every day in this world, and yet God is still waiting. He's still calling. He's still pleading for mankind to return to him. But he's not fair, is he? The psalmist nailed this perfectly in Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. He said, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, he will not always accuse us, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what God wanted to show the people through the suffering and humiliation of Ezekiel. That God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love far beyond anything they could ever imagine.
Ezekiel was sent by God to show the people how they could be saved, even in the worst of times. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He was sent by God to show us how through his suffering we could be saved in the worst of times from the worst of sin. Jesus willingly endured the agony of the cross and the horrors of God's punishment for our sin to show us the extent of the Father's love for wayward people like us. To show us the incredible cost that was required to redeem us, to pay for our sin, so that we would maybe understand the proportion of his grace compared to our sin, and that that would shock us enough that we would run to him and be saved. God did all this to show his grace. He did all this to extend his arm of love one more time to you and to me. Because that's what God has wanted all along. He has wanted to rescue us from our sin. I jump ahead. This one last verse in Ezekiel chapter 18 shows this so beautifully. Ezekiel 18.32, God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Turn and live. And that's still the call going out today. It's the call going out right now in this room. Turn and live. I encourage you this morning. There's, there's so much more I had on my mind to say about this, but I just really feel like um, this is enough. I encourage you this morning. to look to the man who laid on his side and starved for 390 days to show you the extent of our abuse of God. And yet God's conditional mercy and love toward us and let his suffering point you to the one whose suffering opened the way for you to be eternally rescued and redeemed. Ezekiel was but a foreshadowing of the Savior who would come. He was the first son of man, but the true and greater son of man came. And he went through agony and suffering beyond belief so bad they had to invent a new word for it. I've told you this before, excruciating. X means out, crucis from cross. It literally means out of the cross. That's the word they had to come up with to invent the suffering, the level of suffering that Jesus went through. Excruciating. That's what he went through for you and for me. I pray that this bizarre message from Ezekiel 4 and 5 would resonate with us in a way that nothing has in a long time. May our eyes be open as God wanted the eyes of those people open as they saw this man lying there day after day, wasting away, suffering, and nearly dying. God is saying, that's what I've done for you. 
I've given up everything to get you back. Turn and live. Father, I pray you would take this word this morning. And you would cause it to do whatever work you would have to do in our hearts. I pray, God, you would keep us from becoming complacent, obstinate, comfortable Christians, oblivious to the pain that we're causing you. God, use this word today to open our eyes. Help us to see in some new and meaningful way the suffering that you have been through because of our sin, the patience that you have displayed all of our lives. I pray, God, for every one of us here in whatever way we need to right now, I pray in these moments we return and live. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Of my heart, I want to see.